Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. From July 5th to the 8th on the campus of Gettysburg College, located near the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, in Abraham Lincoln's famed Gettysburg Address, Braver Angels, America's largest grassroots cross-partisan organization dedicated to bridging the political divide, gathered hundreds of activists, elected officials, scholars, journalists, and artists together to launch a movement for civic renewal to heal the painful divisions that are destroying American democracy. In that context, we talked about many issues at the convention. One dialogue that stood out was a conversation I was honored to moderate between Tavis Smiley, one of the foremost African-American journalists of recent decades and a prominent liberal voice, and Ian Rowe, a conservative-leaning leader in the school choice movement with an extraordinary record of charter school development in New York through his organization Vortex Academies. Ian is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. The conversation dug into affirmative action in the aftermath of the recent Supreme Court decision essentially canceling race as a factor in college admissions. But we talked about Justice Clarence Thomas in that context. We also got into the subject of education more broadly, particularly as it pertains to the state of black America. And by the end of the conversation, turned to the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. This was a deep and substantive conversation, debate between two powerfully accomplished men, each of whom care deeply about the black community and about America, albeit coming from very different starting points on the political landscape. These are the sorts of conversations that, in my estimation, move the ball forward. And so I give you Tavis Smiley and Ian Rowe. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is John Wood Jr. I am Braver Angels National Ambassador and somebody who has been pleased to be a part of this grand enterprise for the last five or six years or so. Time starts to starts to get away from me. And I'm also very much pleased to be joined on stage today by two close colleagues, friends, associates, dear brothers of mine, Mr. Tavis Smiley and Mr. Ian Rowe. Come join us on stage. There we go. Good to see you, man. Outstanding. And so now normally, you know, when I appear, I usually don't have to introduce you guys and usually you guys need no introduction. In this case, I will start off with just a few remarks from from my vantage point, but I want you guys to fill in the details a little bit on who you are and how you come to us. And so uh, Tavis, to start with yourself first, Tavis Smiley, media entrepreneur, an icon in American journalism. Uh, If I am not mistaken, the first African-American to have his own show on both PBS and NPR, is that correct? That's right. That's right. Uh, for, for, for many years, I think, had the highest rated show on BET, on Black Entertainment Television, if I remember that correctly. A man whose uh, journalistic accolades could fill, could fill many walls and somebody who's been informing the American public on a wide range of issues uh, for years and years. And uh, he is the owner and innovator behind KBLA in Los Angeles. I believe the only Black-owned talk radio network west of the Mississippi River. Did I get that right, Tavis? There you go. There you go. And uh, uh, full full disclosure, if it seems like I'm being particularly laudatory towards Tavis, it's only because Tavis Smiley happens to be my other boss. I happen to have a new uh, <laughs> a new show myself on uh, KBLA called The Reconstruction Project, which airs on Sunday for anybody who's uh, in Los Angeles and, and listening to the radio. On the other hand, I'm joined uh, on my right, and uh, that wasn't meant to be metaphorical, Ian. It just... It just kind of worked out that way. Um, (laughs) 
But my dear friend, my dear brother, Ian Rose, the founder of Vortex Academies and is an entrepreneur and a leader in the educational choice movement and the charter school movement. He's somebody who is an institution builder, an educational institution builder uh, in the Bronx, in, in New York. Somebody who is, well, he's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He and I have worked together uh, at the Woodson Center. Some of us, uh, some of y'all will know and be familiar with the work of Bob Woodson, uh, the Woodson Center, elevating at-risk youth, working with communities to combat poverty, illiteracy, violence, many other things. Ian uh, worked for the Bush administration. He has uh, worked for MTV. Uh, he's launched civic outreach campaigns, voter drive initiatives. If y'all remember the Rock the Vote campaign, that was largely the, the work of this man there. And of course, a great team and so forth. And so I, I just want to impress upon people here just how extraordinarily fortunate we are at this gathering to be joined by a very wide range of very incredible people. You've already heard from a few of them. You'll hear from a number more. But at the top of that list, uh, in my mind, is Tavis Smiley and Ian Rowe. So brothers, great, grateful to be joined. Grateful to be joined by both of you. Absolutely. Now, that was that was my uh, my cliff notes on the two of you. Anything y'all want to correct or add to the uh, add to the to the record by way of introduction? Nothing to correct. I just want to say thank you for the invitation, um, John, and for the uh, fine work that you were doing. Uh, and I'm honored to be here on the stage with Ian. Malcolm X once said that education is our passport to the future. Tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. And I'm sure we'll get into some conversation about this later. But all of the brouhaha about education. Mm-hmm. Uh, right about now and how we're going to do it as we move forward. Uh, I, I celebrate, I said to Ian on the phone the other day, I celebrate what he's doing. It seems to me there's nothing uh, more important than we could be doing than institution institution building around the issue of education. So I, I'm honored to be with, with Ian, uh, delighted to be with, with John. And I should just, one, one shameless plug, you don't have to be in Los Angeles to listen to John on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, if you take out your phone and download the KBLA 1580 app, <laughs> One more again, KBLA 1580. Download the app and you can listen to John literally every Sunday. Um, our station is billed as unapologetically progressive. And John and I don't, don't have to see everything the same way. But I think one of the things that makes America great, and here we are in Gettysburg, is that we are not afraid to reexamine the assumptions that we hold. We're not afraid to have our inventory of ideas expanded. And so uh, here we are, a progressive uh, talk station in Los Angeles, a flagship in L.A., heard across the country, unafraid to have someone else who has a different point of view on a variety of issues on our station. Um, so John literally just started a couple weeks ago. So uh, uh, John, welcome to KBLA Talk 1580, and I'm glad to be on stage with both of you today. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to be checking people's phones later just to make sure you got just make sure you got the app on it. Yeah, yeah there you go. Got plenty, plenty of time to open your Apple, your Apple store. Here. OK. And uh, Ian, anything you want to want to add by way of intro for yourself? Well, first of all, I will echo my thanks and the honor to be on stage with both of you. I mean, Tavis, I mean, it's always interesting when I meet people that I've learned so much from how much you appreciate all the conversations you've had over the decades with people like me who are learning from from the debates, the discussions you've had, if you really appreciate how much you've expanded um, the mindset of people like me to come to my own opinion on things. So just thank you for that. And we are coming together at a time when uh, there seems to be a fascination with tearing institutions down or questioning fundamental principles of our country. And I do believe it's, it is important to talk and have discussion, 
but also build new institutions that actually represent the principles that we're all talking about. Like, how do you create an educational institution that values viewpoint diversity and democratic discourse? You know, we just launched the high school in the Bronx around organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, how do we do that? You know, we're going to talk about things like the recent affirmative action decision, which you know, I think we'll have an uh, interesting discussion. But one of the things it reveals, we shouldn't be waiting until entry upon college to try and figure out how to ensure all kids have opportunity. And one of the things we need to do is build great educational institutions from the earliest grades that ensure all of our kids are prepared when they get to that point of college entry. Indeed. Well, thank you for that, Ian. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, I think I think we will begin there. So in the conversation we're going to have here today, uh, of course, we are all here convened at Gettysburg because we have we share, I think all of us, a deep seated desire uh, to see this nation move towards the better angels of its nature, to embrace what Dr. King referred to as the beloved community, and to allow us ourselves to be able to see and engage with the deep human dignity that exists across the political spectrum and across the racial spectrum, right? But the truth is we, we can't meaningfully, meaningfully do that unless we sh- prove to ourselves that we can do that, even in the context of disagreement. So I do want to talk to Tavis and Ian about polarization. I want to talk to them about its implications in the context of the racial conversation, American democracy more generally, and explore our common ground. But I do uh, think it's important to maybe start on a point where we may anticipate some differences of opinion. So Tavis, I want to start with you here. The Supreme Court, now with a majority uh, conservative bench, three appointees, of course, rendered by uh, former President Trump, has effectively overturned affirmative action in education, declaring that it is um, unconstitutional, at least to use race as a criteria for admission selection. Many people feel that this is a threat to particularly people of color and certainly African-Americans' capacity to ultimately achieve uh, full and equal or proportional representation in higher education, to take advantage of the American dream, and that this may be evidence of a resurgent resurgent racism or discrimination, perhaps in our larger institutional society. But how do you see it? This won't surprise you. This will not surprise you at all. I think the decision was a, a huge mistake. Uh, I think it is a decision that sends America in a wrong direction. Um, with all due respect, again, this won't surprise you, so let me just put my cards on the table so we don't have to play, uh, play games here. <clears throat> I am beyond trouble that a Supreme Court justice who used affirmative action to get into Yale would then pull the ladder up for others. It is reprehensible. I think it's undemocratic. I think it's un-American. And I think more than anything else, it's hypocritical. I once asked the greatest, the GOAT, Muhammad Ali, who was a friend of mine, I was honored to, could never imagine as a kid growing up in Indiana, in Mississippi, that I'd ever meet Muhammad Ali, much less become a friend of the champs. But I once asked Ali, with all the controversy he'd endured in his life, why he thought he was so beloved by the American people. I mean, it wasn't just lighting the torch at the Olympics in Atlanta. Why do you think he's so beloved by the American people and around the globe with all the controversy you've been engaged in? You lost your belt because you wouldn't 
fighting the Vietnam War and people dismissed you for that. And on and on and on the list goes of all the controversies during the life of Muhammad Ali. And he, you know, he joked and kidded around for a second as Ali was wont to do. But when I finally forced him to get serious about why he thought the American people respected and loved him so much, he said, Tabis, I suspect it's because I have never lied to the American people. Like me or loathe me, love me or hate me. You think about Ali, you got you to accept that, right? He was as advertised. He was who he was. He never lied to the American people. And he floated like a butterfly. And he stung like a, and he stung <laughs> like a bee. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he said to me in the very next breath, something I've never forgotten and never will for as long as I live. So, Tabas, I believe the American people can handle anything. The American people are resilient people, and they can handle anything except hypocrisy. Clarence Thomas is a hypocrite. You cannot take advantage of a program at every stage of your life. If Clarence Thomas had not received affirmative action, he would not have been at Yale. He was essentially affirmative action. They got him a job at EEOC. All of qualified jurists at that time had Thurgood Marshall not been black. Let's just keep it real. George Bush would not have picked Clarence Thomas to replace Thurgood Marshall. And so at every stage of his life, he has benefited from this corrective program called affirmative action. And for all these years now, as the longest serving jurist on the bench, he's done everything he could to pull that ladder up for others. And so I see, and I'll be quiet for the moment, I see affirmative action always have as an opportunity to get in the room for all that I've accomplished in my career, been blessed to accomplish. Somebody had to usher me into that room. When I got in the room, I had to be qualified. But, my, but the melanin in my skin has kept me out of so many rooms in my career that I otherwise deserved or was qualified or talented enough to be in. So I see part of action as a, as a corrector program. Let me close with this. Jackie Robinson, who we all celebrate and love now, was not the first Negro who could play Major League Baseball with the white guys. There are many others. He was the first one given the opportunity to play baseball at the Major League level with the white guys. When he got there, he was able to prove himself. And America now is still a place where there's, there's this divide, this gaping hole still exists between the have-gots and the have-nots. And black people in particular still lag far behind in every single leading economic indicator category. And so I'm happy to have a conversation about not mending but ending affirmative action but you got to tell me what you're going to put in its place. And with that, I yield to my brother from Brooklyn, Ian. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and Ian, if you don't mind me, me setting it up uh, just very quickly, because Tavis made me think of a number, number of things. Um, actually, the first thing he made me think of is that speaking of Jackie, speaking of Jackie Robinson and speaking of Malcolm X, too, who is uh, also mentioned on the stage, for folks who are available to attend the Gettysburg drama that we're having later this evening, you can see me and Mr. Micah Christian, lead singer of Sons of Serendip, playing Malcolm and Jackie uh, in a famous dialogue uh, that they had. Uh, as you know, Tavis, they were... Uh, public rivals in a big and uh, in a big and uh, bitter way. So I was reminded, I was reminded of that, um, and I was also reminded of the fact that Muhammad Ali, you know, who was a friend of my father's, Davis, was a Howard Bingham, who was a friend of yours, the great sports photographer, and Muhammad Ali's best friend. And when I was a little kid, uh, Ian, I, um, uh, my dad took me to visit Howard Bingham at his home in Los Angeles, and the biggest picture that he had on the foyer was a picture that he took of Muhammad Ali and Gerald Ford. Just to remind folks that Muhammad Ali, famous for his politics as well as his fists, was nevertheless somebody uh, who himself could reach across, reach across the aisle. So I thought that was worth noting. 
But on the subject of affirmative action, also Clarence Thomas, um, you know, I met uh, Justice uh, Thomas uh, not too long ago. I uh, had a uh, short but very pleasant interaction with him uh, at an American Enterprise uh, Institute event, the old Parkland Conference in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I met uh, Justice Thomas uh, specifically, and I didn't know we were going to go here, so forgive me, man, but I met him specifically uh, through you, Mr. O. And I know that um, along with uh, you know Bob Woodson and Glenn Lowry, uh, many other uh, venerable folks, I know you have a relationship both with Justice Thomas, to some degree at least, Ian, as well as to this issue, not just from the vantage point of a political commentator, but obviously someone who me and Tavis and everybody who knows you respects as, uh, as an authority in education. So Tavis took some time to, to lean into this issue. I'd like to invite you to do the same. Sure. Um, I didn't know we were going to go here either. So <laughs> I feel compelled to share that I just launched uh, Vertex Partnership Academies, uh, which is a new uh, virtues-based uh, high school uh, in the Bronx. And it's in District 12. Uh, of all the students, and it's, it's um, almost all low-income, predominantly Black and Hispanic, of the 2,000 or so students that start ninth grade in District 12 in the Bronx, Four years later, only 7% uh, graduate from high school ready for college, meaning they start ninth grade and either drop out or four years later, they actually do earn their high school diploma, but still can't do math nor reading without remediation, even if they were to go to college. And, um, you know, in in the wake of the the Supreme Court decision, I looked at some uh, data. This is these are national numbers now. Um, In 2015, the National Center for Educational Statistics, or what's often known as the nation's report card, um, reported that in 2015, 18% of black fourth graders were reading at uh, proficiency levels as defined by the National Center for Educational Statistics, 18%. That was in 2015 for fourth graders, fourth grade black students. In 2019, so four years later, so now that same cohort, that same cohort of eighth graders, 15% are reading at proficiency as defined by the nation's report card. So 18% of fourth graders, four years later, 15% of eighth graders. So now it's 2023. By all estimates, not more than 20% of now black high school seniors are reading at what would be grade level. Um, upon graduation from high school. And the separate statistic, the the college board uh, who produces the SAT, each year they um, publish what the the scores are. Most people don't know this, what actual scores are on the SAT by race, by geography, a bunch of different metrics. And there are about 170,000 or so black students that took the SAT. This was in 2021. Only 1% Um, scored between a 1,400 and 1,600, which is usually the range that is expected for top-tier colleges and universities. I share this data, one, just because it's it's horrific and I fight every day to improve it. Um, But the reason I run schools, particularly schools in the Bronx, is that I want our students to know that they can do hard things, right? That they can lead a self-determined life, that oh, that they can overcome the inevitable barriers that are going to come their way. And as it relates to the affirmative action decision, I mean, I, I have, we have some disagreement on it. I can talk about 
race versus class um, based affirmative action, which is I'm, I'm more a proponent of class based, like give poor kids the leg up and then you'll actually get a lot of black kids and a lot of poor kids of all races. But the reason I raise the data is that the challenge that our kids face is not so much now the lack of race based affirmative action upon entry to an elite college. It's that less than 20 percent of our black kids aren't reading at grade level coming out of high school. That's like that's the huge elephant in the room that we're not addressing. And in some ways, it's a huge distraction when we're talking about race based affirmative action, because if you actually look at the case, look at the actual cases that were adjudicated by the Supreme Court, Harvard and University of North Carolina at Harvard, nearly 70 percent of the black students that were accepted, that are accepted, are black, middle, upper class kids. Either they're economically advantaged, they're from Nigeria, they're from West Africa, from the Caribbean. So in some ways, even affirmative action as executed right now is not helping what I think were the original black kids that it was designed to support. So even in its current iteration, it's supporting, you know, my kids and, and John's kids who theoretically have gotten a lot of the supports that should make them able to make it on their own, which is why, again, I'm a big fan of class-based affirmative action. So that's kind of where I am. And I want to shift the attention away from, you know, I do think, I do think the absence of race-based affirmative action hopefully will put more of a spotlight on where kids are coming out K to 12. And I think it will put more of a spotlight on should we have things like legacy admissions where, you know, so I think all that actually is good discussion that will emerge. But fundamentally, for me, we got to get to the discussion of what's happening way prior to the college application timeframe. I just want to note very quickly that there's a distinction uh, in issues here, which I, I think is important to seize upon in the context of <clears throat> polarization, because the way I usually see these conversations go is you might have one person say, well, you know, race-based affirmative action is something that we need. You might have somebody else say, okay, I don't quite agree with that, but they may share a concern or a dissatisfaction with the data that you pointed to. And when the conversation is polarized, you need to have it all or not, right? You need to say, no, you need to agree with me on race-based affirmative action before we can even get to talking about how we reform things in the, in the, in the grade school, in the grade school level. Um, but in a conversation where we are willing to identify the common ground without getting lost in the tribalism, we can hammer it out on the things we disagree on while also being able to make progress in those areas where we share a discontent with the ways in which things are not functioning in a way that serves our kids in a manner that we can all recognize is, is unfair. So feel free, either of you, to push back on me on that front. But Tavis, with that, I want to turn it back no, to I don't you. want to push back at all. I want to, uh, this, this as well may surprise you. Um, there's nothing that Ian just said that I disagree with. Now, single thing, I'd only add three caveats. <laughs> only three. Okay, here we go. <laughs> in no particular order, they are these, and I'll be brief. Um, one, I take your point about what the real problem is and how we're being distracted. I don't think, though, it's either or. It's both and. It's not either or. It's both and. We have to find a way to address the inequality in education early on. I, again, I started out saying today how much I celebrate the work that you're doing in the boogie down in, 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 in Bronx, in the Bronx. <laughs> J-Lo territory. Yeah, 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 exactly. Jenny from the block. Yeah. But it's not either or. It's both and. We have to address this crisis 
uh, why kids, black kids in particular, aren't being given access to an equal high quality education at a younger age and at the same time address uh, the absence of African-Americans in elite colleges and beyond. Jesse Jackson Jr., former congressman, proposed something years ago that raised all kind of hell. And I challenge folk who see this issue differently than I do to consider the following. He proposed legislation years ago. He proposed it every year he was in Congress for a constitutional amendment that would guarantee every child in this country access. Here's the language. Hear the language clearly. Access to an equal high quality education. For all the rights we have in this country, our children are not guaranteed access to an equal high quality education. And so you ask Tavis, what's the standard? Glad you ask. Very simple. Whatever the best is in this country, that's the standard. And we set that standard. And every child in this country is guaranteed by the Constitution equal access to a high quality education. Now, I know that doesn't judge or prejudge outcomes, nor should it. The problem is that every kid in this country doesn't start in the same place. If you live in Washington state where they have Boeing and Microsoft and Amazon, the list goes on and on and on, you got a high tax base. You get a great education in Washington state. But if you're in Mississippi where their greatest export is catfish, not so much. (laughs) So that every child in this country doesn't start in the same place. So if we really are serious about this, let's just stop talking trash. Just keep it real. Keep it real. Why not guarantee every child in this country via our our constitution access to an equal high quality education so that every child at least starts in the same place. That's the first point very quickly. The second point is this. So I don't think it's either or I think it's both and, and I offer that for your consideration about how to get there. Uh, I don't like to raise issues without offering some sort of solution as I see it. I think Jesse Jackson Jr. was right about that. It never got traction. He was right about it. Um, So it's not either or, but both and. Number two, I take your point, Ian, that many elite African-Americans have access to these programs. And we're talking specifically about education. And that's not true for, un- for, for employment. It's not necessarily true for contracting. But in the conversation about education, it is true that oftentimes um, uh, elite African-Americans get access to these elite schools. The problem I have with that is, as you already teed up, ain't nobody mad about the legacies. Nobody's mad about that. Nobody's mad about the athletes. Anybody mad about that? So here again, race is a part of everything in this country. You have to convince me why we're so focused on this one particular slice of who gets access, but we don't want to discuss any of the other pieces about who gets access. That, that's race. And it's, 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 it's unavoidable. It's incontrovertible. It's race at the center of our politics. Um, and the, the third and final point I, I would simply make is that this is not the end. And black folk ain't stupid. This is the beginning. It starts with doing away with affirmative action in education. And next will be employment. Next will be contracting. How do I know this? Because I live in California where John Wood Jr. lives. And our friend Ward Connolly did this successfully in California and other states followed. So it won't stop at just education. They will go and go and go until they can't go any further to eliminate race as a keyword, a factor in anything that we do. I'll stop for now. Ian, respond to any piece of that that you like, but I would yeah. be curious to know where you come down on the legacy uh, admissions. Because actually, in, in response to this decision, I think there has been an uptick in conversation on oh, that yeah. front and as well. And in fact, Harvard was just um, 
was just sued. There's there's yeah. a suit uh, against Harvard, which um, I mean the the uh, the reason I think the Supreme Court decision couldn't address legacy issues and some of the other you know kids of donors and all that uh, is that the only the only um, prism through which they could look at this case is the Constitution and um, the Equal Protection Clause. So so I think the Supreme Court could only address. Um, race-based affirmative action as a discriminatory practice. So in far as legacy, I do think it should uh, essentially be eliminated. The one thing I think we have to, I think the thing that we have to um, recognize though, uh, is that if you look at a lot of um, legacy sort of admit part of, or, or alumni, I guess, they're the many of the ones who are writing the big ticket um, checks for, <laughs> for for scholarships, mm-hmm. particularly for low income kids. So that, so that's so in, in that discussion, we want to figure out a way if we, if you eliminate one, it's like always you, know, you got to look at like what Thomas Sowell says. There are no solutions, only trade offs. Right. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. so so that's just something I think if legacy. Um, admissions are eliminated as a preference, which I support, we should not be um, uncognizant of what impact that could have on donations that come from that community. So anyway, that, 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 that's a, a point there. Um, athletes are harder. You know, notice, you know, a lot of the, the school, all these elite schools have put out statements since the decision, basically saying, We'll comply with the law, but we're still going to figure out a way to get black kids in. But they're not mentioning legacy. They're not mentioning the children of donors. They're not mentioning athletics. So it'll be interesting to see how these self-righteous institutions act. Yesterday, um, some of you may have read the New York Times had a a series of essays on what should we do now. Uh, And uh, I think uh, Richard Collenberg had a column basically advocating a position I agree on, which is let's replace, if you're going to have affirmative action, let's have economic based um, preferences, um, uh, not race-based, but um, the great Roland Fryer. Did you see this piece? I'm sorry. He had a great piece and I'm going to reach out to him to see if I can help figure out a way to make it happen. But he's saying, look, if you Harvard, if you Yale, if you UNC are so concerned about this issue, there's nothing stopping you as an institution which with huge endowments of launching a charter school within your community, right? Um, so imagine, it's a really, it's such a simple, you know, sometimes the most brilliant ideas, you're like, why didn't I think of that? You know, a- a- after you've heard it. Um, but he's saying, look, what if the top tier, you know, create a hundred um, charter schools, high schools, and op- optimally middle school, where these institutions are, taking these students under their wing and creating a whole new pipeline of talent. And these colleges and universities would have a better sense of what the challenges are that are facing kids that live in the Bronx and Appalachia and all these communities mm. that they're not tapping into today. Because I can tell you, when I run our schools in the Bronx, there are things that I experience or I observe of our students that I don't think the, the admissions officers uh, really have a sense of what is going on in their lives. I know John wants to jump in. If I could just add Go ahead. two quick things in 30 Go seconds, ahead. though. Uh, I know you want to move past this issue. Um, I saw Roland's piece, uh, as you did, and Roland's brilliant. I've known him for years and interviewed him a number of times. Um, and yet I think what his piece misses is that still only addresses 
a small number. Oh yeah, necessary those but who not impacted. sufficient. Yeah. Necessary but not sufficient. I, I agree with that. Nice phrase. I'll take that. Necessary but not sufficient because, and that's my larger issue with what you're with what, what you're doing. The question is, how do we make? I've had this debate so many times about school choice. I'm, I'm sick of having it, right? But it's a it's a worthy conversation. And I, I've I've come to to sum up my my feelings about it in, in a very simple sentence. Uh, I, I ain't got a problem with school choice. The question is, how do we make all schools choice? That's my issue. Never wrong with school choice. How do you make all schools choice? And 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 we don't have we don't have a conversation that is that's universal enough for me. So there's always a there's a there's a tier there's a slice of folk who get impacted by this, but the rest of these black and brown students are still stuck right where they are, uh, in bad public schools, dilapidated schools, books that are torn apart, et cetera, et cetera. You take my point. I'll move on from that. The other point I want to make very quickly about affirmative action, though. It's going to be fascinating. So you know, I, I'm always trying to think ahead, right? Trying to figure where's this going next? As I said earlier, they start with education. It's not going to end there. The Supreme Court, I always remind my audience every day on the radio, chooses the cases it wants to hear. It's a very, very important point that we lose sight of in our democracy. Our Supreme Court is the most powerful court in the entire world. There is no Supreme Court that has the power that our court has. I think it has too much uh, power, quite frankly. And they serve for too long. Another conversation, another time. We got to do some revisions there. <laughs> my point simply is this. They have all this power. Um, they have all this power. Uh, and these decisions that they make impact us, you know, for the rest of our lives. Right. And I'm concerned about the fact that they get to choose what they want to hear. They wanted to hear a case that would allow them to do what they did. Mark my word. They want to hear another case in the not too distant future that would allow them to attack the same issue in employment, in contracting. You heard it from Tavis at Gettysburg. It's going to happen. It is just a matter of time. Here's what I'm getting to very quickly. When we get to the issue of employment and when we get to the issue of contracting, it's going to be very, very fascinating, particularly on contracting, because nobody wants to talk about this as well. Let's just be let's just keep it real. A significant number of folk in this country who benefited from affirmative action are white women. And I might add the white men who they're married to and who are the fathers of their children. Because so many of these companies are uh, listed in the name of the wife as the owner. It's the oldest trick in the book. So they can take advantage of the MBE, WBE programs. It's going to be a very, very different conversation. You can, you can, you can, you can poo-poo the education debate all you want. When we get to contracting, a lot of white folk are going to be impacted by affirmative action in that regard. And then I think the conversation is going to be a lot more nuanced than it is right about now, but I digress for the moment. Got it. Okay. Um, I, one, 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 last, one last point about okay, um, uh, choice. So in that same district in which we just opened up um, our high school, where only 7% of kids graduate from high school ready for college, there's, there's, a, there's a cap. There's a legislative barrier on opening new charter schools, right? So New York City as a whole has about 60,000 kids on the wait list um, for public charter schools. And these are almost all low-income families who are just desperate for their kids to have a shot, right? I mean, I saw, I saw your documentary. What's that? Oh, yes. Waiting, waiting for Superman. Waiting for Superman, yes. There's a great documentary about that. I saw that. Yes. yes. So when you talk about choice and a guarantee you know, not to get too polarized, but um, this year the governor of New York proposed the audacious idea to eliminate the cap so that if there were education entrepreneurs like me that wanted to launch new schools in these communities, they would have the ability to, to provide an application and compete for the opportunity to run a great school, especially in 
low-income communities. She's a Democratic governor. Literally the day after she made this announcement, the head of the, the state assembly, I mean, the, and, and unfortunately, I'll say it, predominantly black, predominantly Democrat, leaders came forward and said, no way, this will ruin public education. We can, this cannot stand. And what did Governor Hochul do? She quietly rescinded her uh, proposal and the cap still remains. And so it's, it, I mean, everything you just, of course, I mean, it, it, absolutely that's the key that a kid should have the ability to go to a great school within their neighborhood that meets their values and that they have a choice because by the way, one person's great is, you know, so, so that, that's the whole idea. Just like middle and upper class families have the choice today by either moving to a nice neighborhood or choosing a private school that doesn't exist for the most vulnerable of our society. What concerns, uh, very quickly, what concerns those legislators, as you know, we don't have time to get into this, I don't want to get ahead of John. What concerns those legislators, and it concerns me as well, is another conversation for another time, is privatization. Uh, and I think many of us suffer uh, because of privatization in this country, and we continue to move more and more in that direction. Uh, and so when you see Democrats jump up and say, it's a bad idea, it's not because we don't want our kids to be educated. That's not the point. The question that we don't want to wrestle with is what does it mean to privatize every sector of American life? That's a very different conversation. And what, and what do you mean? Do you mean for profit? What do you mean? What do you mean by well, privatization? Yeah, well, that 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 it's not. Well, there are number. That's a very good question. There are a number of ways to define that. One, way, one is, is it's this money is, making. This is yeah. the point where a moderator yeah. starts thinking. Okay, at what point do we take the off ramp, or how do we keep going down the <laughs> no, freeway? No, this, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm no, gonna, I'm gonna no, let y'all keep going. I'm just, I'm you, just making yeah. up. No, no, but no, it's no, good no, because this is this actually is is the crux of it, right? There are a number of ways to define it, and it depends on what sector of government we're talking about. There is privatization for the purpose of making money. The prison industrial complex. It's privatized. That's all about making money. You're warehousing black and brown men. Just keep it real again. But you're making a bunch of money off of that. Making a bunch of money off of that. That's one definition of privatization. Another definition is um, that schools get to decide who they let in. That's the that's way, way of looking through a privatization, a privatization prism that you decide who gets in. Um, and the rest of us are damned to perdition. So again, I don't want, I take John's point and he's the moderator. I don't want to get too far afield, but there are a number of, there are a variety of ways to define privatization. And all I'm trying to say is that when we have these conversations and people think that Democrats or black folk or people on the left or progressives like me have knee jerk responses and say, oh no, we can't do that. Well, hold up, hold up, brother. It's not just that we are against the good idea. I say all the time, I would much prefer a good idea than a particular ideology. I'll take a good idea over ideology any day of the week. But when people push back on those things, there are reasons for that. And I think people are concerned, again, that it destroys public education, potentially. That it, and, and even if you don't accept the phrase that it destroys public education, we still haven't addressed the issue of how we do the best for the greater good. How do we serve the biggest number of children? And it's not through a charter process, even though you're doing great work in the Bronx. All right, brothers and sisters, thank you very right. much. Let me we, just propose. We, we, okay. let me just we, propose. we have to lock hands. Let, let, I think there's a let, path forward for us on this. Let me, let I me really just, do. And in that spirit, Ian, let me just propose that on this aspect of the conversation, education, privatization, affirmative action, et cetera, that we continue this conversation on KBLA and the Brave Rangers <laughs> podcast. <So. laughs> there you go. All right, y'all. Yeah, download the app, subscribe where you get your podcast. Okay. 
I, I, I want to move us. I want to move us forward, and I, I want to make time for your questions too, because we actually have a little more time for this session than I originally realized. And I do want to open it up to Q and A as we get past the the half hour mark a little bit. Um, but I, I do want to talk a little bit on the um, on the level of of values, things that are a bit uh, a priori to to politics. And it's a funny thing, because when I realized that we might have the opportunity to broker a conversation between the two of you, I thought to myself, well, you know, Tava Smiley, Ian Rowe, uh, these are individuals with distinctly, you know, differing uh, overall sort of political orientations. But I can see potentially some real convergence on the level of deeper values, deeper concerns. Um, and I want to explore that a little bit and still open room for tension to potentially emerge if there is any. But the way I want to go into this is, Ian, I, I want to invite you to share with us a little bit uh, about your own formula, because I think it starts this values conversation off right. Uh, you have written about this idea of free as an acronym um, that sort of encapsulates the formula for success that's applicable to all people, but that I think you think may be um, uh, particularly beneficial uh, for poor and underserved kids and certainly black and brown kids and families. Um, but it's, uh, I know that there's a policy sort of extension of this formula for you, but I really want to key in on it as a statement of your values and, and, and see, you know, sort of how Tavis relates to that. Can you tell us about free? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, like, like all of us, we, you know, we were talking earlier about, uh, 30 years ago, the Rodney King trials, um, or the, the riots. Um, I mean, we've, we've all been in this work long enough that, and, and me in particular, you know, I've, I've worked with young people of, of every conceivable background, whether it was rock the vote or my time at MTV, time in the white house with no child left behind, you know, I've seen young people, you know, in con, you know, rich kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids, kids in foster care, um, kids in homeless shelters. Um, you know, I've seen kids in very challenging situations as they now make their decisions, as they enter young adulthood, unfortunately make the kinds of decisions where they essentially recreate the same dysfunction that they experienced as a child, right? They just perpetuated this cycle of disadvantage. And yet I've seen other kids in those same exact challenging situations, you know, domestic violence, um, divorce, abuse, neglect, as they enter young adulthood, make different sets of decisions. And the animating question of my life, frankly, is what makes the difference? You know, what, what is it that differentiates that young person who recreates their disadvantage versus those that break the cycle? You know, is it just random? You know, is it just, you know, one is, you know, one's a LeBron James and they could just bounce a basketball out of poverty, right? Is there anything that's common? And my observations is that there are certain things that have been in common based on my observations. And the single, single greatest characteristic that I've seen of young people who were able to break the cycle of disadvantage was that they, they had a sense of personal agency in their own lives, right? They, they felt they had the ability to lead what I call a self-determined life, even in the face of opposition, an agency I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, 
right? The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. Because for these young people who were able to break the cycle of disadvantage, it's not that they just had agency out of nowhere. You know, they didn't just pull up, pull themselves up by the bootstraps and they just knew the right thing to do. In my observation, there were four pillars that they, their lives were connected to in one way or another. And those four pillars are what is my free framework, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. <laughs> free. <laughs> and I'll just quickly go through it. But family, the, 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 one of the biggest observations I've had for young people who are able to break the cycle of disadvantage, they recognized that their future wasn't necessarily bound by the family that they're from. It was much more about the family that they were on the way to form. So that's why in our schools, for example, we teach something called a success sequence. If, if you're familiar with that terminology, that's data that says if a young person of any background finishes just their high school degree, then gets a full-time job of any kind just so they can learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if they have children, if they got married first, that's that order of decisions, education, work, marriage, then children. 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions in that order avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. Now, it's not 100% because nothing in life is guaranteed. But we teach our kids that, not in a prescriptive way saying you must do this, but in a, um, in a descriptive way saying you're going to be making big decisions over the course of your life, particularly over the course of the next 10 years of your life around education, relationships, work. You should know this. And so that's one of the and, – and so that is one aspect, and I write about this in my book, Agency. That's the first aspect of family, free, having young pe people understand that one of the most profound decisions they will make as a human being is to bring another human being into the world and that there are better pathways to make that big decision. So that's the F in free. The second is R for religion. The, the, uh, my observation of seeing young people who are able to break the cycle of disadvantage is that they had some kind of personal faith commitment in their lives, typically informed by a organized religion. You know, they had a they lived by a moral code and they were typically part of a larger community with weekly rituals like going to church where they were part of a community of people that expected them to live up to this moral code. And if you look at the data, even though religiosity is, is unfortunately on the decline, huge differences in terms of isolation, depression, loneliness, suicidal uh, ideation, all, you know, all the things, even, even pornography consumption, dramatic differences between young people who have a personal faith commitment and do not. So that's what my second observation. My third observation, young people who were able to break the cycle of disadvantage benefited from educational choice. And school freedom, that's got, it's, it's just fundamental to the story. And then the very last E is for entrepreneurship. In some ways, informed by, if you're on the pathway to form a strong family, if you have a strong personal faith commitment, if you've benefited from educational freedom, that usually leads to the last E, which is that you're, you have an entrepreneurial mindset. You are a problem solver. You are an overcomer when challenges come your way. So that's the framework I've presented free is my pathway for young people to have an empowering alternative to the narratives that today, in my view, are sending a message of victimhood and grievance 
as opposed to hope and agency. I still, thank you. And just as a note to, to, to myself and us, I still want to get to the point to where we can, I, this, this conversation has been so, so rich and deep. Of course, I came into it with the plan. And of course, my plan went out the window <laughs> within about 20 minutes. I still want to get to where we can uh, talk a little bit about the legacy of Dr. King, some of the other things we mentioned. But uh, uh, Tavis, the reason I wanted Ian to go uh, into that formulation was because, again, you know, obviously, and you can see the application of all of that in, in Ian's work. Uh, but I also take it as a, as a value statement. And I'll tell you, Tavis, that uh, before uh, you and I first met, uh, one of the things that I learned about you and was, was, was touched in learning about you was in, in, in hearing you talk about your upbringing, uh, the importance of the role of your father, what, what he meant to, right, your family, uh, the way that your connection uh, to your church, to the black church, was, uh, was, it was a connection to the larger Black community and what was otherwise, I mean, don't let me steal your, th- your, your, your thunder here, of course, but, you know, it was something that I think had a, clearly a formative impact on you. And obviously, you're, you're, you're famously somebody who values education and embodies entrepreneurialism. And so uh, I'm curious to get your response to what Ian said, particularly if you take that as a bit of a values statement. And, you know, or, or is there anything, you know, what resonates with you there? And is there anything that misses for you? Um. If that makes you feel any better, first of all, um, uh, Mike Tyson, uh, at one point, as you know, lost the heavyweight championship of the world uh, to Buster Douglas. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, I uh, said, champ, what happened? Didn't you have a plan? He said, yeah, I had a plan. Everybody got a plan until they get hit. <laughs> uh, and so you weren't the only one who had a plan that, yeah. went, that went awry. Um, so let me, let me as long just, as I don't have to suck up any right hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let me just say a few things. Uh, one, um, I listened to Ian lay out that, that framework. It's beautiful, by the way. Uh, and, and I think for the most part, uh, I have, um, uh, in my lifetime, certainly as an adolescent, was, was uh, adjacent to most of those things. Um, maybe not so much the, 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 the last, the, the last E. But the first three, certainly I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have been, you know, a very poor family, but I had family. And my parents valued education and I grew up in a black church. So I, I understand those things uh, quite nicely. Again, the entrepreneurship thing uh, came later for me. Um, but that, that's number one. Number two, um, I have argued for many, many years now. I read a book many years ago and I highly recommend it if you can find it. It may still be in publication. I don't know. Uh, but I, wrote a, I read a book years ago called Educating for Character by a guy named Thomas Lacona. Powerful book. One of the most amazing books I've ever read, Educating for Character by Thomas Lacona. And what, what Mr. Lacona argues in this book um, is that we should seriously consider in this country a values education curriculum in our schools. And I've long supported that. I'm a progressive, an unapologetic progressive, but I've long supported a values education curriculum in our schools because of the way the world is going so many of our young people don't have access to the kind of values education that I received in my home. Uh, and so I, I strongly support a values um, education curriculum in our schools and I uh, became convinced it was worthy to do so when I read that book by Thomas Lacona, once again, called Educating for Character. There's not a lot that Ian said that I disagree with, but there is, again, another caveat here. As I listen to you talk, we've invoked the name of Dr. King a number of times in this conversation. You will never hear me present anywhere. 
without mentioning the name of Dr. King. And I say that because while we were in Gettysburg, with all due respect to Mr. Lincoln, uh, I, this is my own personal assessment, I still regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country has ever produced. That's my assessment. And if you want to fight, I'll meet you in the lobby after we talk. Uh, I'll debate you on Lincoln. I'll debate you on FDR, and I'll give you my rationale. When you got to do it nonviolent. When I have more time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> nonviolent, yeah. Uh, um, we can shadow box. Yeah, there you go. Um, but I, I regard King as the greatest American this country has produced. That's, again, my own individual assessment. I wrote a book about the last year of his life called Death of the King, uh, which explores why I love Dr. King so much. You have to see him in the last year. The other years are important, but the last year of his life, you have to see King in those dark moments to really appreciate who he um, was. Um, but I say that because King uh, talked about what he called a revolution of values. It troubles me in this country that we act like Dr. King only gave one speech in his life. And we act like the speech only had one line in it. <laughs> and my conservative Republican friends love to take this line and bastardize it and twist it like a pretzel. That I want my children to live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the. And they twist that thing to mean everything they want it to mean. That is not exactly. And I hate it when they take that word, that phrase rather than bastardize it uh, in ways that King wouldn't recognize were he here today. King gave a lot of speeches in his life. And frankly, the I Have a Dream speech is not the greatest. We think it's the greatest because we hear it all the time. Uh, but he talked often about what he called a revolution of values. So I want to just make this a little bit bigger than the frame, if I can. Uh, I love Ian's frame. But I want to expand it. It may help our conversation. I don't know. But King is talking about a revolution of values in this country. And I raise that because I don't think you can disconnect the revolution of values that King was talking about and the values education curriculum that Ian is talking about. You can't disconnect those two things. I used the word hypocrisy earlier. Here's the problem in our country. The hypocrisy is this is the frame that we want these black and brown kids to operate inside of. Use the word narrative. But that ain't the narrative the country gives them. This country is not serious about a revolution of values of its own. And these kids are not stuck on stupid. They can see that. They can see the frame we want to put them in is not the frame that America operates inside of. Uh, I hope that we'll get to a point in my lifetime, maybe not, where America will truly become a nation as good as its promise. But there's a huge gap between the promise of America and the possibility in America for all of our citizens. And these young folks see that. King would grade America, I don't get too far afield here, but he would grade America, if I can use the phrase, on this scorecard. This would be his grading system. He said that the, 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 the triple threat that was facing America was our real problem. He called that triple threat racism, poverty, and demilitarism. So I ask you to grade America not by Joe Biden or Donald Trump, Republican, Democrat matters not when they stand up in the well of the Congress every year and lie to the American people and tell us that the state of our union is strong. It's a lie. The state of our union is not strong. Our democracy is in peril. It's fragile. But they keep lying and telling us that. Uh, poverty is threatening our democracy. Uh, as, I mean, as there are any number of other issues I'd, I'd go into if I had the time. The point, the point I want you to focus on that I want us to think about 
is simply this, that America has to undergo its own revolution of values before we try to convince black and brown kids that they need to undergo a revolution of values. This is the system that they live inside of. And when they see the inequity, when they see the unfairness, when they see the income inequality, when they see the, uh, the poverty, when they see the economic immobility, when they see the environmental racism, I could do this all day if I had the time. That's the system that they have to live inside of. And I say this simply, people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. They'd rather see one than hear one. So we keep preaching about this, this, this notion of values, which again, I don't disagree with at all. I'm just saying the frame is larger. I'm okay to have a conversation about values for black kids. But what about values for our country? And that's what King was pushing America toward, a revolution of values. I'm going to say one last thing that's going to shock you. So it's kind of like a plane taking off and you're going through turbulence. I'm going to ask you to hold on to your seat right quick. I'm going to tell you something you probably don't know, um, but I write about this, of course, in my book, Death of a King. Uh, and I'll just give you the very short version. Dr. King, as you all know, killed on the balcony in Memphis, Lorraine Motel. The last phone call he had before he walked on the balcony and was shot was a conversation with his secretary back at Ebenezer Church in Atlanta where he pastored. Uh, her name was Dora McDonald. And no matter where King was every week, he would always get back to Atlanta uh, on Sunday mornings to preach at Ebenezer. He would always call Dora Thursday, Friday at the latest to give her the sermon topic for that Sunday morning because uh, back in the day, we'd have a, a bulletin when you got to church. They'd pass out the church bulletin with the order of service, the sermon, the page in the back to put your notes. So they had to get this thing printed. So he had to always call by Thursday, Friday morning at the latest to give Dora his sermon for the week. And Dr. King told Dora McDonald on that phone call, that the title of his Sunday morning sermon, had he made it back to Atlanta, would be entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. Now, all you know is the I Have a Dream guy. This is King in 1968, who's about to preach a sermon called Why America May Go to Hell. And the sermon was built around would have been built around this notion of pushing America toward a revolution of values. And so I close by saying I'm all for that. Again, it's amazing the things that you and I agree on. No disagreement with that whatsoever. As I said earlier, I've been, I've been subject to that in most of my life. But I also understand that these children are raised in a country that needs its own revolution of values. And when they see one thing, when they hear one narrative, but we push something else on them, hypocrisy. I digress. Ladies and gentlemen, a generous round of applause for Tavis Smiley and Ian Rowe. <clears throat> Thank you both. Uh, so I, I want to pivot towards questions, but I, I do want to preface that uh, with a short statement of my own, particularly pivoting off of the, uh, the introduce, introduction of Dr. King to the conversation. And I'll, um, I'll start with that uh, simply by noting this. You, you know, Tavis, when you and I first connected, um, 
I, I considered it to be a, a deep point of connection that we, you know, both have this, both have this desire to see the legacy and philosophy of King and all of his complexity, by the way, sure. sort of more deeply introduced into the public conscious. I've heard you say that part of what King advanced was putting love forward in the public square and that we need to put love back in the public square today. And I would argue that it is in that vein that Dr. King, you know, among others, and of course, you know, we are here, as you mentioned, uh, Tavis in Gettysburg, 160 years almost to the day, um, I think, of the, um, of the Battle of Gettysburg, 160 years from the Gettysburg Address. But we're also 60 years out from the I Have a Dream speech. And, um, and of course, Tavis, I, you know, I would say that it, it was a great speech. I share your desire for that not to be the end-all, be-all of what anybody knows about King, right? But we are living in history. And Dr. King's relevance for me, even if you might, from one side or the other, you know, look at the particulars of Dr. King's politics and render any opinionated judgment that you might like, but the idea that, as many of you have heard me say, that love is a spiritual power that can affect social transformation, that goodwill has the power to transform us on the level of our conscience as Americans. If we have nothing else in common, brave angels, we ought to believe in that. Because otherwise, there's no basis for friendship. There's no basis for trust. If we don't have a deep sense of human goodwill towards one another in spite of everything that's piled on top of that. And so in that sense, you know, the work of Braver Angels and certainly the work of my life has been deeply informed by the legacy of Dr. King. And so I want to turn to questions, but I do want to invite a very special friend of mine. Um, and oh, do we have our do we have our, our microphone in motion? OK, there we go. Um, Professor Harry Boyd, um, if you don't mind uh, standing up for us for, for just a quick moment. Um, Professor Boyd uh, is a friend of mine and somebody who I will allow to introduce himself, but uh, he's a longtime leader at Braver Angels, um, voice of conscience for many, um, somebody who's an authority in philosophical nonviolence, and somebody who, of course, was, was actually there at that speech, uh, Tavis. Um, and so if we can uh, bring the microphone uh, over to him. Um, can I just add for 30 seconds while she's, while she's bringing the microphone? Yes. What you just said is very powerful, and I want to just put this out before the, the brilliant professor speaks. Um, when King talks of love, it's important to define that define that word. I just want to put this out for you to consider as the professor speaks. When King's talking about love, as he often did, it was the it was it was, it was his ethos, right? King's definition of love is simply this: that everybody is worthy just because. That's right. Everybody is somebody's child, and everybody's somebody's kid. And everybody is equally worthy just because, period, hard stop. It doesn't matter your color, your ethnicity, your race, your religion, your economic income, who your mom and them are, how much money they make, what kind of car you drive, what neighborhood you live in. Everybody is equally worthy just because. Now, imagine, and I'll shut up and you to the professor, Imagine if we could ever operationalize that definition in our politics, in our public policy. Imagine advancing public policy based upon the simple notion that every citizen is equally worthy just because it changes how we do education. It changes how we do health care. 
I'll shut up. You take my point. If everybody were equally worthy, just because it fundamentally changes America. Professor, I'm sorry. Well, I, I don't think of myself as a professor so much as a lowly field secretary for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference oh, who used to sir. drive Dr. King to the airport yeah. and, and occasionally would play a, a game of ping pong with him. Um, I heard Dr. King practice I Have a Dream the night before he gave it on my father's sleeping bag. Or my father's hotel, the floor of my father's hotel room, I was in the sleeping bag. I was a kid. Um, Dad had just gone on staff as the first white person on the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so I couldn't agree with you more than in my view, Dr. King is the, the, the luminous figure out of American history. Um, I do have a couple of other comments about this. One is he didn't simply say just because. He said, because we all are made in the image of God. And he said that again and again. He was deeply convinced and he could see the spirituality of even his enemies. So that you can't separate his notion, which was agape or public love, from his depth of his religious belief. But he and James Lawson and Bayard Rustin and many others also believe that the great religions of the world, certainly Hindu and uh, Jain religion and uh, Buddhism and, and, and Jewish religion all had that sense of the sacredness of the person. And then for people who were unbelievers, they talked about belief in the inviolable dignity of the person. So one of the things that makes me uneasy about Dr. King and the legacy of the movement and conventional discussions of education is the individualist quality of the, of the discussion. I mean, King also, I've been doing a lot of work on this, um, and the citizenship schools, which I worked as a staff person in, in SCLC citizenship schools, they grew out of 60 years of black schools. They were called the Rosenwald schools. Black communities built 5,300 schools. They built them. They got some, a little bit of money from a fund at Tuskegee, Rosenwald Fund, but communities built them and they owned them. And they were the sources of strength and development and also a different understanding of education, which was about education is about everybody. It's not about winnowing out the stars or the people who go to elite schools. There were two principles that the genes teachers who was the organizers of those communities held. First of all, they believed that education was about citizenship. And citizenship involved having a responsibility to your community to give back because it was a whole community that educated you. But it also uh, was responsibility to be a change agent. They were, they were fighting the radical dehumanization of African-Americans. They knew segregation was wrong. And they, they were politically savvy like we just don't see these days. They were organizers who figured out how to make alliances with whites who were sympathetic to black education, bring in rural whites into the libraries that they created, work with all sorts of institutions to get those schools. Uh, that is a legacy of collective endeavor and education is collective that we need to remember because that actually is the only future of a democratic society if we see that we are all in it together. And as uh, Howard Thurman, a great inspiration to King put it, 
We need a politics which is deeper and more powerful and more transformative than anything we have ever seen in America. And we need a politics based on the premise that everyone has great potential. Every single person has potential and every single person has dignity. So I think this is good. I think there are a lot of dimensions to Dr. King and his philosophy. Um, and also the, the educational traditions, the HBCUs out of, which he, out of which he came and he was schooled by. And we, it's easy to talk about elite con, con, uh, colleges, but it's, there's a legacy that we, we have for largely forgotten as a whole society that is tremendously important. That's why every child is having value. Yeah, indeed. Professor Boyd, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for joining us and lending the benefit of your wisdom. I'd like to invite quick reflections from, from either or both of you if you want, but I also want to get some more folks' questions in. Well, I, I was just uh, going to comment on the Rosenwald schools, which how many folks are familiar with the Rosenwald schools? This is always a heartbreak for me that there isn't more awareness of the greatness of uh, it's, it's worth just spending 40 seconds on it, but well, I'm running a school that's going to make sure our kids know about the mm -hmm. Rosenwald schools. So Booker T. Washington connected with Julius Rosenwald, who at the time was the, the CEO of Sears, uh, Roebuck company, which, you know, that was the Walmart of the day. And uh, this was during Jim Crow segregation. This is when black schools were segregated, horrifically low resources. And Booker T. Washington said, we do not have to accept the standard for our schools, um, for our education of black kids. And throughout the South, I think through 14 states in the South, they built, it was a 5,300, I normally say about 5,000, but it's in, that, it's in that order of magnitude. And you're right, there was a great level of community ownership over the construction of those schools, black principals, black teachers, an incredible example of self-determination during Jim Crow. And most people don't know this aspect, it was the Brown versus Board of Education decision that made the fundamental um, observation that separate meant unequal and thus inherently inferior, that it essentially deemed the Rosenwald schools, these incredible all-black schools, unconstitutional. So why don't we have Rosenwald schools today is because the, the Supreme Court decision that we all hail as so incredible actually nullified one of the greatest examples. I mean, I'd love to hear your observation about this. One of the greatest examples of self-determination of black education. It's incredible. I just want to just underscore, if I can, the irony of where we are now. I take your point. But look where we are now in the aftermath of this recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. If I've read one, I've read a countless, I've read more articles I can count now. I'm tired of reading all the articles about the opportunity this is for the HBCUs now. That article is everywhere. What a great opportunity for HBCUs uh, now that these Negroes can't get into the elite schools. <laughs> so look, look at, you see my point, right? Look, look, where, look where we've come. So, so, the, 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 so the, the, the critique, the criticism that we typically get is that we don't want to be in segregated spaces in America. We don't want that. But yet everybody now is looking to HBCUs to save the day that education, uh, that affirmative action education has now been, has been uh, gutted. It's a, it's, a, it's a sick and sad, and at the same time, in some ways, funny irony, but I digress.
thank you, thank you, Tavis. Okay, uh, hands up. Um, and let's see. Oh, oh yeah, that's. I guess I gotta actually pick people, right? That's that's tough. Okay, my brother over here in the back with the laptop. Tell us your name, man. Tell us where you're from. Uh, my name is Corey. Um, I'm originally from Chicago, and now I live in Washington D.C. Good to have you here. Thank you. I want to ask, I guess, like a general question. I think that we can all acknowledge that, you know, race, racism, unfortunately, still plays a role in American life. But on the question of things like racial preferences, um, I, I think the question really I have is like, I, I don't see how those things necessarily benefit considering the fact that particularly one thing we didn't talk about is that when it comes to things like Ivy League admissions and stuff like that, it's overwhelmingly the people who benefit from that are um, usually like black immigrants and, you know, people Mm -hmm. from, you know, Nigeria, Kenya, things like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've been on Ivy League campuses. Most of the blacks I meet are not necessarily descendants of American slavery, Jim Crow. So I think the question is, is um, would you say that a lot of these sorts of like racial preference policies um, more or more of like a distraction to from the actual legitimate issues yeah. that are actually there. Yeah, that actually exists. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you very much well, for the question. Yeah. We, we, we did cover that ground, I think, pretty good in the conversation. But if either or both of you want to offer just a very quick summation of your. No, no, that, that, that was the point I was making earlier. And again, if you look at the actual cases that were adjudicated in this Supreme Court decision, Harvard, you know, nearly 70 percent of the black students were just as you described, upper middle class often recent uh, immigrants or, or children of native-born American, but upper-middle-class, well-educated. You know, they're the ones their kids went to prep for prep in New York and private schools. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's part of, again, which is why for me, if we are going to have affirmative action, an economic-based affirmative action would be, I believe, more powerful and reach, I think, the very people that we all um, think should have, if there's going to be a leg up, then let's give it to low-income kids of all races who've demonstrated academic prowess. But most importantly, we got to get back to the K-12 system to ensure that all kids are actually, with choice, um, are being prepared in a way that they can compete. And by the way, uh, even in our school, at the end of 10th grade, our students will be able to choose either a college-university pathway or a pathway of careers where they can do apprenticeships in junior and senior year. The other thing we have to lose this idea, this obsession that college is the only uh, option after high school. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Tavis, you spoke to that earlier. Do you want to reiterate? Are you good? Okay. All right. So let's uh, keep going. Uh, more hands. Um, I see Mark Beckwith here, the turquoise. And Mark, if you can uh, be concise, just so we can try and get as many folks. Mark Beckwith from New Hampshire. And uh, as a country, we're wrestling with reparations. Certainly the institution I represent, the Episcopal Church, is trying to figure that out. Sometimes that term just turns people off. How do we engage in reparations uh, beyond just saying we're supported? And how do we uh, make it manifest in our country? Hey, Will, can, can we get another hour on the, uh, on the clock <laughs> exactly. for, for this one? <laughs> yeah, we, we, need, we need another uh, symposium for that. Um, let me just say I, I am, uh, in this regard, proud to live in California. Uh, I see all the time on the radio every day. Again, my station is flagship in L.A., heard across the country. Um, but I see all the time that what happens in California politics either cast a long shadow or a long sunbeam across the country. 
I hope that what we're trying to do in California will cast a long sunbeam uh, and not a long shadow. Uh, Gavin Newsom's acting a little funny lately. He's starting to moonwalk like Michael Jackson on this reparations issue. Um, even though it was his idea to do this task force that now he has problems with. I digress on that point again. But I'm hoping that uh, we will be able to show the country a model um, with what we're doing in California. Uh, again, we could spend hours talking about this, but it is about reparative justice. Uh, and I'm the first to tell you it's about more than just a paycheck. Uh, there are any number of ways to define reparations. And I think we're going to we're going to work through that in the legislature in California right now. Uh, but again, I'm hopeful that in the in the not too distant future, California will give the country a model for how to uh, how to wrestle with that question in the coming years. Ian, how should we be engaging the question of reparations? This is a much longer discussion. I'm, I'm sorry. Because, I'm sorry. you know. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of the New York Times 1619 Project, um, uh, or lead author, put in a, wrote an 8,000-word essay in the magazine called um, What We Are Owed. It's actually a brilliant essay. If you, if you want to, to read A Case for Reparations, you know, second to Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, In the Atlantic. But basically, she makes the case that the U.S. government uh, must pass a policy that's, you know, valued at about 13 to 14 trillion dollars that has to just be paid to black people. And there's certain criteria that you have to identify as black as for the last 10 years or so, so there's, there's certain, there's certain criteria, but in it, she says that, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is basically the point. The point is, it doesn't matter, this is her words, it doesn't matter what a black person does. This is what they've been told to do. It doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save, um, it doesn't matter if you get married. In her words, none of those things, quote, can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. And, and again, I'm an educator constantly in, in the sense of what are the messages that we're sending to young people, right? So when I hear, when I read those words, I mean, I could read them as an adult and kind of get the sense. And by the way, for what it's worth, Nicole Hannah-Jones has done all four of those things in her own life to lead a very prosperous life. And good for her, because I think she's understood the, the anchors that much more likely lead to a fulfilling life. But when I think of the message to young people, if you hear that message over and over and over and over again, it doesn't matter what you do based on your skin color. I think that plays into the narrative that yields a sense of either why bother or the system is rigged against me. And so I fight against that. I, you know, I want young people to know the empowering strategies that they have at their, their avail. So yeah. if we define reparations as investing in our K to 12 system so that every kid has an opportunity to go to a great school, if we have more um, larger narratives and campaigns about how to build strong families mm -hmm. to revitalize faith, then I'm down with the program. Um, but when it's usually in the form of government money falling from the sky, I actually think in a, in a way it will hurt the very people that we think it's intended to help. Okay. I know Tavis has got know, a response. This is a long conversation. Got a let, let me suggest that we, we add this, we add this to the agenda <laughs> for KBLA and for the podcast. All right. Cause I want to keep you brothers talking. Okay. God, this is really tough. I'm so sorry. We've got, we've got hands up. Um, I, I want to, 
Ah, oh, jeez. Okay, I want to throw it to, to the voice reason in the back and then come back to the young lady in the scarf up here if we have time. So, Casey, I'm sending you all around the room. And I'm sorry, I know the room's left and right. I'm just looking right down the middle. Thank you. Thank you, brother. We got Philly. Peace, peace. What's the deal? Arsh on the voice of reason. Philadelphia representative representing Gangsta Grass, the world's greatest bluegrass Ooh. hip-hop band. All right. Um, first and foremost, shout out to the God Tavis Smiley. We glad you're here, bro. Um, Thank you, as an MC, I can't, I can't steal this. This is not my own. My partner here, Dolio the Sleuth, actually sent me a text uh, message when you were breaking your, down your whole free concept, right? And he said that uh, if you add dignity opportunity and mentorship to those. You get freedom. You get freedom. Oh! As, uh, as bars. That's the God MC right there, Dolio the Sleuth, Pensacola, Florida representative. All right. So what I'm saying is, it feels like with, you know, you, you dropped a little science with the free thing, but it feels like when all of that is brought up, it really is leaving out the idea, like you were just saying about uh, what the sister said about the reparations thing, that like, yeah, you can do all of those things, right? But there's still the weight of all of that 400 years on you. How, how, does it, how is it that, it that just sort of ignoring that yeah. Is, yeah. is the way yeah. when it's so, so heavy and so blatant? Yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, how no, do how do you just get past all that, right? And ignore you know all of that other weight on you. Yeah, it's I, I, yeah. Ian, respond to that, and then to my sister here, I'm gonna need you to top that when you ask your question. Okay, so all right, but go ahead. No, no, it's a great question because like I don't view like what I do is ignoring that history that we're talking about. I guess I see it in trying to put. In the context, like when I shared that story about earlier about the governor Hochul, you know, making this proposal and then the number of elected officials saying, no, we're not going to do that, essentially ending the idea of freedom. You know, I was in Albany the next week trying to fight to 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 provide a counter idea that whether it's the 400 years of uh, racialized pondering or present day elected officials stopping opportunity in my I don't maybe in some way I don't. Um, draw a distinction between those two because the impact is that the kids in my community still don't have an opportunity to get on the first rung of what we would want to accomplish as it relates to reparations specifically again i i I actually would love to have a discussion on this because the it is not clear to me that simply money falling from the sky from the government is going to get the intended outcomes that we are all fighting for, for our kids. And I know it's a longer conversation, but I just know, I just know that there are other paths, by the way, the one that Nicole Hannah Jones followed in her own life. Um, and that, by the way, that's not casting dispersions on her. That's good for her. I wish more young people knew the lives that most black people, and you know, most black people in this country are not in jail, you know, not not in the criminal justice. They're living their lives. They're married, you know. And so that just needs to be as prominent a subject matter as our path to freedom. And I'm going to add dignity, opportunity and <laughs> mentorship. I love that. There you go. <laughs> shout, shout out to the sleuth. OK. Okay, what, one last question. I promised it to the young lady uh, in the front here. And so go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Sabrina. Um, Hi. I'm with 
Bravery Angels uh, with the Europe chapter or Europe Alliance. Hey, Sabrina. I was going to ask a very specific economic question about apprenticeships. However, if I have to beat um, his question, um, I think I'll just think about why I came here and <laughs> um, part of something that I'm looking forward to sort of bringing back in my, my work circles or in the circles of the Europeans in which I'm networking with for Braver Angels. Uh, I want to be able to tell them something positive that goes against sort of the narratives that a lot of European news sources that I read say about our country. So sort of from this panel, you know, what's something that you both can really strongly summarize that you feel is hopeful, like tangibly hopeful mm. about the progress that we can make uh, for African-Americans in this country? Travis, Ian? Okay. Wow. Does that mean you don't have something optimistic to say? <laughs> That's also fine, but... I'll go first. <laughs> let me just say really quick, don't, don't let the Swiss get a better one on us on this. Don't let them be right about this. That's, that's what I'll say. It's, 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 it's a great question, and let, let me answer it this way. Um, I make a clear distinction, and I want to use the word that you used. I make a clear distinction between optimism and hope. They're not the same thing. Fundamentally different. Optimism suggests there's a particular set of facts, circumstances, or conditions, something you can see, feel, or touch that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. That's optimism. And frankly, that ain't where I live. Frankly, that's not where black folk have ever lived. And that's why the brother in the, uh, the MC is right. You can't dismiss this. You can't ignore it. It's, it's as real as rain. Black people have never, as you mentioned African-Americans, black people have never in the history of this country, had reason to be optimistic, ever. There were never facts, circumstances, or conditions. There were never things we could see, feel, or touch that gave us reason to believe that things were going to get better. Can I convince you of this right quick? Harriet Tubman didn't go back 19 times because she was optimistic. Mary McLeod Bethune didn't do what she did in the, in the realm of education with Eleanor Roosevelt because she was optimistic. Rosa Parks didn't sit down on that bus because she was optimistic. Black folk have never had reason in this country, even right now, to be optimistic about our future. What we do have is hope. And I'm an example, and many other black folk I know, most black folk I know who ever succeeded are examples that you can build an entire life out of hope. Not to proselytize, but the Bible that I read says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we have always been a hopeful people, not an optimistic people. And so the message I would send back to Brave Rangers in New York uh, is that we have to remain hopeful. Uh, now, hope needs some help. <laughs> hope needs help, but we have to remain hopeful. Again, even when the data doesn't suggest that things are going to get better for us, we have to remain hopeful. I take the point that Ian made earlier, which I, he obviously he has the last word. Um, Although the lunch bell is just about yeah, to Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want, I don't want uh, people to ever be hopeless. But we can build lives on hope. We're not in a moment right now. We are not in a moment in black America. And frankly, I don't think we're at a moment in American history right now where we have necessarily reason to be optimistic. But at our best, we are people who are hopeful and we can build something on that platform of hope. And that's where, that's where I am. 
Thank you for listening to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And and I know I know, I know unfortunately I am duty bound to 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 let us out for for lunch here. I, Ian, I believe that you do have reason for hope and optimism. I suspect just knowing just knowing yourself and a bit of how you see things. Well, I I, I run school, so that I'm I'm, I'm guilty of hope and optimism. <laughs> um, there's a poem that all of our kids uh, at Vertex are going to learn. It's uh, Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And if you're looking for some inspiration, read that poem because William Ernest Henley was going through an incredible challenge in his own life when he wrote that poem. But the last two were the last two lines of that poem that all of our students are going to know, they're going to know the entire poem, but they are, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the reason we have that, and that will be our standard bear is there are no victims in our school. They're only architects of their own lives. And that's the kind of student that we're trying to build, even in the face of historical and present day challenges. Indeed. So, ladies and gentlemen of Braver Angels, <laughs> whether or not you are optimistic, let us make these next few days a testament to the power of hope. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.